Well, if you have a paper Bible, I want you to grab it real quick. I want to show you, you can do something pretty cool with it. Uh, you can't do this if you don't have a paper Bible, so you're just going to have to see my Bible and depend on me for this. Um, but if you've got a paper Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 1, just like where the Old Testament and the New Testament break up. It's kind of interesting, something that you can do. This is not a magic trick. I'm not a magician. I never claimed to be one. This is not an illusion, but I just want to show you this real quick, Okay. Pull up Matthew chapter 1, where, or where it might say in your Bible, the New Testament, right? might look like this. It's pretty cool, right? That's what it says in my Bible. I just want you to take it, and I want you to look at both sides real quick. Just like look at our proportions here, right? If you don't have a paper Bible, you can just look up at me. It's like, okay, this is kind of the proportions we're dealing with, right? On the left side, you're right, is the Old Testament. That big section is the Old Testament. This is kind of basic uh, Bible stuff. The right side for me, left side for you, is the New Testament. I just want you to consider how much is on the left side, how much is on the right side. Have you ever considered this? If you've got a paper Bible, you're looking at yours right now. But I, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but it's like mostly the left side, right? Like that is a lot more than that. I don't know if you're seeing this, if you're looking at me, or if you're looking at your Bible. Have you ever contemplated how much more of the Bible is actually considered the Old Testament? And how much less of the Bible is in the New Testament? It's interesting because usually when we preach and when we teach and when we think about Christianity, most of our focus tends to be on the right side of the Bible. And that's not entirely wrong because we certainly want to know what Jesus taught. We want to know what the apostles taught. We want to know what it looks like to live the Christian life. But I'm just trying to tell you that if you don't know the left side, or maybe you're a person who kind of discounts the left side. Sometimes you think, well, I got my daily Bible reading. I'm just going to read the New Testament don't really need to read the Old Testament because I don't really understand it anyway. And sometimes we can bring these attitudes of discounting the left side. I want to show you that the Bible that Jesus had was only the left side. The Bible that Jesus taught from, and frankly, that most of the apostles taught from for most of their ministry was just the left side. And when Jesus comes along and starts speaking from God, there might be people in the audience who start thinking, okay, does this mean we're supposed to get rid of what God has said in the past? in the Old Testament. Does this mean that maybe you're changing everything about the Old Testament, which means I don't have to listen to the Old Testament? Jesus comes along in the Sermon on the Mount and says, no, the left side is just as important as the right side. And in fact, he says that the Old Testament teaching, what God has revealed about himself, will never go away. He says it's still God's word, it's still from God, and it's still important for you. In fact, he actually says, if you diminish this left side, if you're a person who says, yeah, no, it's Old Testament's old, we don't really need it for today, if you think that way, he says, if you even take the smallest of God's Old Testament commandments and say, yeah, that doesn't matter, he says, God is going to call you the smallest or the least in his kingdom. If you don't believe me, if you're in Matthew chapter 1, just turn to the right a couple pages to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at what Jesus says to a group of people that might start to consider, do we need to get rid of the Old Testament? I mean, the Old Testament, by the stats at least, by word count, is 77.42% of your Bible. 77%. That's more than three quarters. The New Testament is only 22.58%. Like, it's considerably less than half. It's even less than a quarter, right? If you had, you know, four quarters and three of them were the Old Testament, that's it's even more, right? The Old Testament, sorry, that's a stupid analogy. You know what I mean. You know what 77% means. Um, most of you. Maybe some of you freshmen don't know yet, but, you know, you're going to learn. Um, Maybe you seniors forgot. I don't know. You know, you took your SAT. I'm done, right? You don't even do math in the SAT, do you? It's just in the ACT, right? Or do you math in the SAT? All right, good, good. Oh, all right. Um, where am I? Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 17. Let's look at what Jesus says here. He says, as he brings this new teaching, he says, don't think that I have come to abolish or get rid of or destroy 
the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. You might say, wait a minute, where does he mention the Old Testament? He doesn't use the words Old Testament like we use. It means a testament is a promise or a covenant. Old means older, right? We have two testaments, the new and the old. The old is older, the new is newer, right? They're both covenants or testaments. Those are old words, which basically mean God's word, his promises to people. So where does he say Old Testament? Well, the two words he uses right there, law and prophets, were the most common designations in Jesus' time for the Old Testament because they never would have called it the Old Testament. They wouldn't have called it the Bible either. Do you know what the word Bible means? It just means book. It's just the Greek word for book. So we just call it the book. Sometimes it's called the Holy Bible. But what is the Bible? The Bible consists of three parts in the Old Testament. The law, sometimes called the Torah. You've heard that before maybe. Then the second part is called the prophets. That's what he refers to. And the third part of the Old Testament is the writings, or sometimes just called the Psalms. In Luke 24, Jesus says, all the things considered about me in the law, the prophets, and the writings, or the Psalms. So those three parts make up the Old Testament as we know it today. He says, don't think I've come along to get rid of them. The word abolish literally means to, to destroy. So he says, I didn't come to like stamp out the Old Testament. I didn't come to take the Old Testament and throw it away. That's not what I came to do. In fact, Jesus says, I came to fulfill it. We're going to talk about what that means. It's a really important word in this text. He says in verse 18, for truly I say to you, right, just to make sure you know that what I'm saying is true, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So that's a major statement that should shape the way we, as followers of Christ, understand the Old Testament. He said, until heaven and earth pass away, which is a phrase used in Matthew to say the end of the world. So God like destroys this world, not a single iota, which is a, a Greek letter, which is the smallest letter, or a dot, literally a, a hook. So in Hebrew, the Old Testament scriptures, there are some letters that look identical to each other minus one little serif. So a serif will change the, the meaning of, of a letter, which can change the meaning of a word. There's one scholar that looked at uh, Deuteronomy 6.4, which is a famous passage, which says, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. It goes on, right? But the word one is the same exact word as the word another minus one little hook. If you just add a hook to one letter, if you just change just a serif, on the letter. It goes from saying the Lord our God is one to reading to say the Lord our God is another, right? It's just interesting how one little hook can change the meaning of a word, which can change the meaning of really the whole sentence. Now, there's another passage he looks at, Exodus 34, which is the passage where God says, I'm jealous. I'm a jealous God. In that passage, there's the phrase, do not worship another God. So he's saying, you know, worship me only. But if you change that word another, the word one, just by one removal of a seraph. What does that read as? It reads as, do not worship the one God, right? That changes the whole meaning of the sentence. So Jesus is trying to say, look, the Old Testament is so important, not just the, uh, the big picture themes, not just like the meta narrative of scripture that, you know, there's a God and we have a problem and we've got a sin problem. God's got to fix it. Not just that. That's important too. But he says every letter, every hook on every letter is important. And by the way, it's not going away until this whole world is changed, until heaven and earth pass away. It's a massive statement he makes here. Verse 19, he says, therefore, here's the results of that. Whoever, whether it be you or me or anybody else, whoever relaxes, which we don't see it in that word, but the word relax is the same word as the word abolish. 
just used in a different context. Whoever takes God's word and says, unimportant, null and void, that, that's not a big deal. No, that's not a big deal. That's it to us, right? Whoever takes God's word, even if it's in the Old Testament, sometimes we do this. Whoever takes God's word and says, that's not important, abolishes it, well, he says, they will, even the least of the commandments, it could be a small thing. If you do that and teaches others to do the same, which is what we often do, when we think something's not important, we like to try to spread our influence and say, that's not that important, and we get other people to join in on what we're doing. He says, whoever does that will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But on the other hand, whoever does them and teaches them, same idea, right? When you do something, you want other people to do it with you, right? Whoever does the word of God and teaches the word of God will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's a massive statement, and it should change the way we look at the left side of our Bible. He goes on. This is probably the most important thing. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness, which righteousness is that word we've already seen, which means to do what's right, right? To, to, to obey the law, to, to, to follow God's commandments, to walk in his ways, to do things that are right and good. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds or is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, who were the very holy religious people. He says, unless your righteousness is greater than theirs and exceeds theirs in some way, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's not saying, just to be the holiest person in the room, you should have righteousness holier than the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you are not even a Christian or saved or a disciple we use those words interchangeably a lot. You're not even in with God unless you have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Right? See how that's a difficult, this is a very difficult passage. Some of us immediately like, no, he must not mean that. Right? Well, I think he does mean that. Right? We, we shouldn't immediately run to say, no, 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 that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he meant. It is what he said. Right? So it's going to take some work to understand this. And I want to warn you this morning, we're going to get into some things in the Old Testament. We're going to get into some theological controversies and things that are kind of hard because this passage is so important. If Jesus says, don't throw away your Old Testament, in fact, you need it. In fact, you need to do it. In fact, if you don't do it or teach other people not to do it, you're going to be called the least in God's whole program and his whole kingdom. And this is important for each and every one of us because we got a Bible. Some of us don't read it. Others of us do read it. Sometimes we discount what God has to say. Basically, we need to agree with Jesus that the Old Testament is important and that we need to do it. It's relevant. We want to seek to truly do it from the heart. It's this greater righteousness, you know, such a big concept that I'm going to save it for later in this sermon. I want to get back to it. But the concept of greater righteousness, in my, in my view, in my, the way I read this, is that that's what Jesus is going to talk about in every subsequent sermon. So you're going to see two things in all the rest of these passages. He'll say, you heard it was said of old, don't murder. But I say to you, if you're angry with your brother in your heart, then that's like you've murdered. Right? So he's going to say these things. He's going to quote the Old Testament, and he's going to abolish it. He's going to say, that's not true. No, he's going to say, it is true. But I say to you, I just want to show you that greater righteousness with the law doesn't look like just saying, hey, I'm a good person because I haven't murdered anybody. The greater righteousness that Jesus calls his disciples to is, no, don't just be a person who thinks they're good because you haven't murdered. Don't, don't hate your brother in your heart either. That's the greater righteousness that his disciples are going to start to display here. We'll get into that in more depth later in, in the subsequent sermons. But first, what I want you to see is this important phrase, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That's so important for us to understand. So I want you to write this down, and we'll explain it in a minute. Point number one, I want you to value the fulfilled yet relevant Old Testament. 
I want you to value the fulfilled yet relevant Old Testament. I say the word yet because sometimes if we read fulfilled, we think, well, then it, it's over. It's done. It's not important now. It is not the case. He says, yes, I fulfilled it, but yet you need to keep doing it. That's complicated. What about the ceremonial laws? What about the, you know, don't mix two fabrics? What about the you can't shave a certain part of your face, right? We're going to get into that. He's going to talk about that. Let's talk about what this word fulfill means first. To fulfill literally means to fill up. It's like if you got your hydro flask and it's half full, you dump water in it, and then it's full. Okay? Once it's full, once you've fulfilled that hydro flask, what's in it, the inside, matches what it's made to be. Okay? So what Jesus is trying to describe about himself in, in um, concert with the Old Testament is what the Old Testament is about, what it prescribes in the law, what it points forward to in the, New Test- in the prophets, all of that is fulfilled in me. Right? It's not fulfilled in you, it's not fulfilled in me, it's fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? So what does that mean? Well, this word fulfill, used 16 times in the Gospel of Matthew, so it's one of Matthew's favorite words. Almost every time, other than this one and one other time, it's always in concert with, like, this was done to fulfill what the prophet spoke. Right? That's listed, like, 14 of the 16 times. Okay? So, basically, Matthew says, Jesus did this thing. Oh, and why did he do that thing? Well, because it fulfilled what was written in the Old Testament. So we see that one of the you know, famous ones we already saw in Matthew 4, was like Jesus came to Galilee. And this was to fulfill what was spoken in, by the prophet Isaiah, that a light will come to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. That the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That kind of Christmas passage sometimes we study. That was written in 700 AD, or 700 BC, fulfilled in what Jesus did. So Matthew says what Jesus did in his life fulfilled what was written about 700 years ago. So what was written is now fulfilled in Jesus. That's the main usage of the word fulfill. Like it was, uh, prophecy was fulfilled. He uses it in chapter one and two where he talks about how in the Old Testament book of Micah, it's promised that the scepter, that the ruler will come from a little town called Bethlehem. And Matthew says, he was born in Bethlehem to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Okay? That's usually what the word fulfill means. The other passage is Matthew 3.15 where it's used outside of the Old Testament context. Here's what it says. Jesus is talking about getting baptized, and he says, it's good for us to get baptized. It's good for me to get baptized by you, John the Baptist. It was fitting in order for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's helpful for us, because that gives a clue outside of just fulfilling an Old Testament scripture. What he's saying is, I'm going to get baptized. Why? Because it's the right thing to do, and one of my missions here on earth is to do everything that is right. So like, if there's a righteous standard, to, to fulfill that standard. Right? If the hydro flask is 40 ounces, to put 40 ounces of righteousness in that, because I don't want anything to be left over. I want to fulfill everything that the Old Testament says. So when Jesus says, I didn't come to get rid of it, I came to fulfill it, means a lot of things. The first big thing is that Jesus is what the Old Testament points forward to. It's what it's, it's all about. And pertains to the law, in particular, all the rules, Jesus fulfilled all the laws. Like, if we were told, don't steal, and don't covet what your neighbor has. Right? Those are negative laws. Well, Jesus fulfilled those. He didn't covet. He didn't murder. But he also didn't hate his brother in his heart. So he fulfills what the law says, not just the negatives, right? We mostly think of laws like, you know, speeding tickets and, you know, how much do I have to steal before it becomes a felony, right? That's usually the way we think of laws. Don't, don't think about that for too long. Uh, but 
That's usually how we think of laws. They're like limits to tell us no. Well, that's only half of what the laws are, because the other half are, this is what you should aspire to. God's law is something that we should fulfill in the sense that we should aim. Here's what else is in his law, that you would love your neighbor as yourself. Is that in our criminal laws? No, it's not in our criminal laws, because our criminal laws are mostly negative laws, right? Like, don't cross this line. But God's law also includes the things that you're supposed to do, not just the things you're supposed to not do. Okay, does that make sense? So when Jesus fulfills the law, he doesn't just like avoid all the problems. He also does all the things that are good, that are prescribed in God's law. So he says, I didn't come to get rid of it. I came to fulfill it. Super important. But when you say that, when you say, okay, well, then Jesus fulfilled it, then there's another built-in confusion. Okay, well, then if Jesus did it, and I can't do it all the way, and I'll never do it all the way, well, then why do I even care about it? Like, that's a really good question. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing in this passage. He says in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, that phrase that he uses here, but my words will not pass away. So he says, my words are like the Old Testament words, that they never go away, my words never go away. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, one verse, it's a good verse to memorize, is Psalm 119, 89, where David, or the psalmist, or whoever it is, writes, we don't know, some people think it's David, by the way, um, some people think it's Ezra, that doesn't really matter. Um, Psalm 119:89 says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. What does that mean? God speaks, it's done. It's there forever. Forever, O oh Lord. Your word is fixed in the heavens. It's like, it's in the sky. Nobody can touch it. It's there. It's done. God's spoken it. That's it. If God said something's wrong, it's always wrong. If God said something's good and right, that is good and that is right. And there's nothing you can do to change it. Your opinion doesn't really matter. My opinion doesn't really matter. My life experience doesn't really matter. Yours doesn't either. Why? Because God's word is fixed in the heavens. When he says something, that's it. That's a strong verse from Psalm 119. So what do we do about the Old Testament? What about those uh, laws? One of the laws that was super common back then, painful law, was the law of circumcision. You guys know about that, right? I'm going to get into some uh, medical details on Sunday morning, but I think you probably know what circumcision is. Right? To cut around is what the word literally means, if you just need more visual, right? Um, circumcision, right? It means to cut in a circle. That's something that all the dudes were supposed to do in the Old Testament, right? Like all of them. Like that's commanded in the Old Testament. Oh, but then in the New Testament, Paul comes along in Galatians 2, if you read your daily Bible reading today, what did it say? It said, oh, circumcision? It's nothing. It's like, well, okay, now we sound like we're abolishing or fulfilling. Like, what does that mean? Okay, so a law in the Old Testament can be fulfilled, yet not abolished, by that I'm saying, that when Jesus does it and fulfills everything good about it, that some of those laws no longer apply today. Okay, so... That's important to know because it sounds like this passage is saying every law of God that was made in Leviticus about um, not, you, one of the things you weren't supposed to do is you weren't supposed to harvest all of your crops to the edges because you were supposed to leave some for the Israelites who didn't have as much money, didn't have land. So you're supposed to leave some. You were supposed to you know, harvest, let's say, 90% of it. But leave like 10% of it left over so that if people are traveling, they can kind of, you know, pick some apples off your tree, so to speak. They can get some stuff from your farm because, you know, they're traveling and they don't have any food. That's one of the laws that's in the Old Testament. Now, here's what's important. Um, you need to understand that in God's law, you have to remember what was the purpose that God gave his law for. If you know your Bible, you know that the law is at the beginning. It was given to a certain group of people, the Israelites. What were the Israelites? Well, they were a nation 
among nations. At least when we come to the book of Deuteronomy, we finally got a, it's a country. Okay? Countries all have some kind of laws about what's criminal, uh, what kind of punishment should fit with every crime. Right? Law, laws are like that for countries. Right? Another part of Israel's history is they had religious laws about ceremonies that these Israelites were supposed to keep. Now, are those laws no longer important today? Well, the answer technically, according to Jesus, is no, they are important today. Um, That doesn't mean you're going to do them in the same way, but they are still important, and they're important because Jesus fulfills those laws. Like all the laws of God, when he speaks, that's a law. There's no changing it, just because culture changes. But some of those laws Jesus fulfills and says we no longer have to do. Like one of those is circumcision, right? Um, (laughs) Kind of weird, but like here's the whole point. In the New Testament, you see this with the food laws. Remember all the food laws? You can't eat shellfish. You can't eat certain types of food. Uh, Even today, Jews don't mix meat with cheese because of a passage about you're not supposed to boil a goat in its mother's milk, which doesn't even say you can't put meat and cheese together. But these Jews are so concerned, they don't want to break that law. So they're like, okay, then fine. We won't even like have meat and cheese together. So no cheeseburgers. If you ever go to Israel, it's like there's no cheeseburgers. There's hamburgers though, right? And they're not even supposed to have milk at the same meal that they have, um, I was going to say bacon. They don't eat bacon either, right? Pigs, not allowed. Um, so there's all these rules, right? Even if you had a, a sausage a lot, is that, is that beef? I get pork. No, that's pork. Dude, breakfast is tip- difficult if you're a Jewish person, right? But you're saying, wait, 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 hold on. Didn't Jesus say that's all important? Why, why, are we even, why do we eat bacon? Right? Well, because in the New Testament, Jesus says that that law was for his nation in the Old Testament, to be distinct from the other nations. But then in the New Testament, Acts 10, he says, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. So in the New Testament, God's program extends to Gentiles, like all of us, most of us, right? Unless you're a Jewish person. Right? Most of us are Gentiles. We're not, we're not Jewish by birth. We don't follow the Jewish laws. Well, why is that? Right? Well, you follow a lot of the Jewish law, like don't steal, and those are Jewish laws too. But why not the ceremonial laws? Why not the food laws? Well, because in the New Testament, God clearly says, Now, if you're a Christian, you don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to live like a Jew. That was really hard for them in the New Testament era. Seriously, super hard. So much so that in the the book of Acts, you had groups of Christians getting together saying, okay, circumcision was in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't say anything about circumcision. Should we continue that? Do you have to get circumcised when you become a Christian? Right? That, like, weird, right? But in the New Testament, it became clear, no, no, no. We don't have to follow that law anymore because that law was meant to say this nation was different among nations. Like We can be Christians in whatever cultural context that God puts us. It's another way of thinking about it. You don't have to become a Jew. I mean, that was literally in the Daily Bible reading today, right? In Galatians 2, 14, Paul's very clear. You don't have to become a Jew when you become a Christian. Right? So some of those laws pertain to being Jewish that you don't have to do anymore. You can follow Christ in any culture but if you are a follower of Christ in any culture, then you have to start to see, okay, what is in correspondence with the Old Testament law? What's not in correspondence? I need to make sure that I'm keeping what God requires for me. Not all God's laws are the same. And as you read God's laws in the Old Testament, you'll notice that some of them are very different. You'll see them repeated in the New Testament. You'll see others shown through example to be evil and wrong, right? Where food inherently is not evil. You may say, how do we know that? Well, 1 Corinthians First Corinthians talks about that. It says food is meant for the stomach, stomach for food. Like there's nothing inherent about food. Now, 
That was a totally different problem. That was a bunch of uh, Greek people being like, should we eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol because that seems wrong? And Paul says, look, you can do whatever you want, but here's what you can't do. Don't do something that makes your brother or sister in Christ stumble. You can't do that, right? So meat doesn't matter. doesn't matter where it came from. Paul says, I'd eat meat even if it was sacrificed at a temple. I don't care. It's just meat because God owns the whole world. But if someone served me some food and said, oh, hey, this meat was sacrificed to this pagan god. Do you want to partake in what this pagan god did? Then he's like, oh, well, then I won't do that, right? See, this is a little complicated, right? Um, I don't mean to make it more complicated than it needs to be. Sorry if that, it is complicated. But um, the Old Testament has a lot to say about Jesus and has a lot to say about obeying God, has a lot to say about wisdom, right? We read the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. There's a lot to say about um, worshiping God and honoring God has a lot to say about marriage, has a lot to say about gender, has a lot to say about love, has a lot to say about faithfulness, has a lot to say about honesty. Those things continue just because the ceremonial law is fulfilled. And those of you who are old enough here, you remember when in True North we studied the book of Hebrews a couple years ago. It's very clear that the ceremonies in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the work that Jesus does. The ceremony of the Sabbath. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus is our Sabbath rest, right? He fulfills that. What about the Old Testament like laws for sacrifices? We don't do those anymore because we have a sacrifice. It's Jesus. But it's just so interesting. It's not that those laws don't apply. They do apply, but Jesus just does them for us. Like the best example is the sacrificial system. We don't need to bring a goat to church and sacrifice a goat for a particular sin because we have a sacrifice for us. So there is continuity in that sense with the Old Testament. All right, I hope to not make that more confusing than it needs to be. Maybe the easiest way to see this is turn to your Bibles real quick. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. This might make a little bit more sense. Paul writes to Timothy and says, okay, you grew up in a family, interesting family, half Jewish, half Greek. Mom went to church, so to speak. Dad didn't go to church. That was his family, okay? He grew up in that context, and he's got a lot of Jewish background, but in 2 Timothy 3... Paul says to him, okay, he's a pastor now. He's serving God now in that way. He says, okay, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So you read the Old Testament. What is one of the things the Old Testament does? It makes you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. It shows you that you're a sinner. It shows you God's righteous standard. It shows you that you fall short. It shows you that you need a sacrifice. It shows you all of those things, and it teaches you wisdom, worship, all those things. And it shows you that you need Christ. He says all scripture, everything that's written by God, is breathed out by God. It's directly from him, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Think about what he just said. He said that the book of Deuteronomy, he said that the book of Isaiah, every word, all of those words are profitable. They're good for what? Teaching. Teaching you. For reproof, that means saying, hey, this is where you fall short. You need to change. Correction, really saying, hey, what you did was sin. Every word in the Old Testament is profitable for that. Right? Not every word talks about every particular context in which you're struggling with. Okay? I'm not trying to say that. But the Old Testament itself is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? In other words, you cannot be complete, ready for every good work if you don't have the Old Testament. You just aren't. If you don't have the wisdom literature, if you don't have the Psalms, if you don't have the book of Deuteronomy, which you think, man, it's a bunch of laws. Yeah, except for his main thing is love the Lord your God with all your heart. When you go into the land, don't forget about God. When you have everything you need and your stomachs are full and you think, I don't need God anymore, don't forget that God brought you in the land. Can you see how that's directly applicable to your life? Right? When you have everything you need and when you think that you're good, right? don't forget God. God's the one who gave you that stuff. Right? So the Old Testament is relevant, needs to be, needs to be uh, valued by you. So here's the question. Do you read the Old Testament? Do you read it? Uh, do you care about it? Do you read the book of Isaiah? Like this morning, we started the book of Isaiah. I know we finished Song of Solomon, so if you want to catch up on your reading, there you go. Uh, you can do that if you want, but uh, <laughs> maybe you skipped last week, but <laughs> you didn't skip last week. Uh, but the book of Isaiah starts today. We're in Galatians and Isaiah, two books that can be complicated. Do you put in the effort to care and say, okay, if these are God's words or this is God's commandment, I want to know what he says? Or are we intimidated by the size of the 77.5%? We intimidated by that thing. I don't know if I want to know about that. Maybe I'll get the Spark Notes version. Uh, do you guys still do Spark Notes? No? Yeah? Oh, man. You got to pay for it now, is what I hear. So, yikes. I, li- I live back in the, uh, the Wild West where everything was free. Um, yeah, Isaiah, Galatians, right? We're back in the, the Old and New Testaments now. Um, I, I just want to ask you do you read it? Right? Some of you have not been reading it. Some of you this summer stopped reading it. Some of you know that you should read the Bible, but you're not really reading the Bible. You tell people you read the Bible, but you only kind of read the Bible sometimes and maybe you just listen to it. Um, I'm just trying to encourage you. I want you to look at the Old Testament and say, this is the word of God. Jesus cared about it so much that he said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Some of you sports fans could tell me every stat about your favorite player or your favorite team. Some of you could Sing along to every lyric of every song of the artist that you like. Some of you could tell me the order in which the songs are on the favorite album that you have. Some of you could tell me all about the characters in your favorite movie. Some of you could quote the entire movie, like Cars 2. You could quote the whole thing, right? It's impressive. You guys got great brains. Some of you know all the different characters of all these complicated, nerdy things, uh, you know, in books and shows and stuff that, you know, I just, I, I've never tipped my, you know, put my feet in. I never dipped my toe in, right? Uh, some of you know all this stuff. Some of you know characters and books, and it's like you know what that character would say in a certain situation. Sometimes even in your imagination, you take that into the real world and say, what would that character do, right? Here's my point. I say all that to show you that you can know the Old Testament. You can know the characters. You, you could know the kings of Israel. You could know what David would say or what David would do in that situation because you got so much. But some of us don't spend any time diving into God's word. Or if we do, we give him passing glances. It, it should bring us shame that we could tell each other all these different things from the different movies that we've watched and different books that we've read and we could start quoting what characters say. Yeah, we cannot quote Elijah we can't quote Moses. Yeah, to our shame. In our passage, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. And what that means is, 
The law is not done away with. God's word is not something that we're moving beyond or moving past. He says he came, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And he said people who disregard God's word, people who say that it's old so it doesn't matter, he said those people, if they are really disciples of him, because they're going to be called least in the kingdom, even with the least of the commandments. But he says whoever does them and teaches them, to do and teach, to practice and to preach, is really to, to model to other people, to show them what it's like, right? Um, if I'm modeling a certain kind of behavior, it means I'm saying it and I'm living it at the same time, right? What I want you to do, if you're a disciple of Christ, I want you to become a model of following God's rules. That's point number two. Become a model of following, in obedience, God's good rules. Become a model of obedience to God's good rules. That's not just saying that you care about it. That's not just like telling people, oh, you should do what God says. That's you living it too and you telling people. That's also not you just living it and never telling people. It's both. It says whoever does and teaches others to do so. If you're good or for bad, right? He says if you're bad, then you're going to teach others to do the wrong that you're doing. If you're good, you're going to teach others to do the good that you're doing in God's word. You might know this from James chapter 1. Verse 22, he warns us, don't be deceived by just hearing the word and never doing it, right? He warns of that. There's another example of a guy in the Bible who does this. We see it in, in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, about Ezra. It says that for Ezra, set his heart, so he made a decision, just like some of you needed to make this decision today. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it teaches statutes and rules in Israel. Rules, statutes, law, those are words used interchangeably even in Psalm 119 that we read this morning to talk about God's word. Ezra said in his heart, I'm going to study it so I'll know it, then I'm going to do it in my life, and then you know what? I'm going to teach it. I'm going to tell other people to do it too. That needs to be the, the theme of our lives. But you might think, well, there's some negative examples of people who might uh, tell others to do good, but they don't do it themselves. There's that one group, two groups technically in the New Testament we often think about, and Jesus even picks on them in our passage. Who are they? Two groups of people. The scribes and the Pharisees, right? What are they famous for, right? They're the good guys or the bad guys in the Bible? They're the bad guys, right? Why are they the bad guys? Are the bad guys because like, they took God's word and said, we don't care about God's word? Do they say, I don't care about being holy. I'm going to live my life however I want to. Nope. It's not why they're the bad guys. There's those bad guys too in the Bible. But the Pharisees were a certain group of religious Israelites who cared a lot, in fact, about God's word. So much so that one scholar says they built a fence around the Torah. That was their goal. So they had God's laws, and they said, okay, we're going to add to God's laws all these different rules so you don't even get close to breaking God's rules. And Jesus comes along and shows how ridiculous that is. Not the care about God's law, but the fact that their new rules were taking the place of God's actual rules and his actual intentions with those rules. Matthew 15, Jesus says, uh, or Matthew writes, then the scribes and Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. You might think, oh, they should wash their hands. Like, that's, that's gross. No, it was a ritual, special washing with special spices, all this special, you know, weird stuff that they did. It's like, they're not keeping the tradition of the elders. Why aren't they doing that? 
And Jesus turns to the Pharisees and scribes and says, and why do you break the commandment of God because of the sake of your tradition? And in that text, it was about how they were not honoring their parents. These Pharisees made this rule. It's very crazy. They made a rule that they didn't have to take care of their parents when they were older because whatever their parents gave to them when they were little babies, they considered a gift to God. And if it's a gift to God, then I don't owe my parents any money or any honor when they get old. I don't have to take care of them when they're old. So Jesus says, you break the commandment, honor your father and mother because of your stupid traditions that you made up. So he warns these people, don't make these extra rules that I don't actually care about. They became a model of obedience, not to God's rules, but to their own standard. And they took their standard and said, that's godliness. So many of us can do this, right? You think you can po- this is possible for a high school student who goes to church? Right? You take your standard of life and say, that is what's right, and if it's not in keeping with how I do things, then it's not right? It's easy for us to become like that. Some of us are even worse. If you're in Matthew chapter 5, or if you're in 2 Timothy 4, I want you to end here. Turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. This is going to give us some insight on even what Jesus says in the last verse. Matthew 23. Just turn there and stay there. I want you to see verses 13 through 15 real quick and just show you one of the problems with what these Pharisees and scribes were doing. They became a model of obedience, not to God's rules, to their rules. So I want you to be careful. You might think that you're a model of obedience to a set of rules. But if the set of rules is your self-made set of rules, like the Pharisees, well, then you're not a model of true obedience. Look at, look at what Jesus says. Matthew 23, look at verse 13 together. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for neither you enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. So he says, look, he, you have this awesome opportunity. You have God's word. You have God's law. You can direct people to know God. But you're shutting heaven in people's faces because, first of all, you're not going there and you're not leading people to go there. It's interesting. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. You get one little disciple of you. You go to crazy lengths. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Like you influence this malleable person to follow all your man-made rules, and they're not even going to heaven. They don't even get it. You make them even worse than you are. There are people who might tell you, this is what it means to follow God, this is what it means to do what God says, but if they're not getting it from God's word, please don't listen to them. I want you to see that teaching people to do bad things is even worse than doing bad things. You can do bad things, and that's bad. But if you start using your influence to tell people, disregard God's rules, let's not follow God, let's not do, that's not good, that's not right. You start to use your influence, like these Pharisees, to start having other people disobey God, that's even worse than you privately in your own life disobeying God. That's bad enough. But you using your influence to do that's even worse. That's why... This passage, I want, the reason I want you to stay in Matthew 23 is because some of us get freaked out when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes of Pharisees or you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. I think here's what Jesus is trying to say. Sometimes you read that as immediately, oh, well, then nobody's perfect. You can't be more righteous than the Pharisees, so you can't go to heaven. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying because he's about to show what greater righteousness looks like in the preceding 
couple of sermons that we're about to preach. Okay? So he's going to show, though there is greater righteousness than the Pharisees. Right? They are external in their righteousness. They do all the right things, but on the inside, it's full of a bunch of sin. It's full of a bunch of hypocrisy. It's full of a bunch of lust. It's full of a bunch of envy and pride. So their righteousness is not really all that righteous. So it says your righteousness needs to exceed that. Point number three, strive for deeper righteousness in your heart. Strive for deeper heart righteousness. That is the greater righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It's not a righteousness that stays in your heart and says, okay, I'm pure in heart, but I'll never do good. That's not the righteousness he's talking about. Righteousness is external. Righteousness is doing what's right. But I'm trying to say, Jesus connects it to your heart. He says some people are righteous on the outside, but they're not righteous on the inside. He says real disciples of Christ are righteous from the inside first, and that works to the outside. Some of you are more like Pharisees in that you're trying to be righteous on the outside and hope that will maybe change things with you and God. That maybe if I kind of do some of the outside right things, then that'll make me right with God. Right? Those of you that are Christians, you realize you've got to give that up first, get right with God in your heart, and then the righteousness comes later as you start to do the righteous things from your heart. Super important distinction to make. Yeah, you're Matthew 23. Look at verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. Look what Jesus says next. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Those are spices. You tithe. What does that mean? Every time they get a little bit, they cut off a little 10% and set it aside. And they cut off 10% and they set it aside. So you can imagine them in the kitchen, you know, taking all their spices and, and putting these little tents away and saying, I'll give that to God. I'll send that to the temple. He says, you tithe, dill, mint, and cumin. This is Matthew 23, 23. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What are those weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, faithfulness, right? Justice, what does that mean? That means treating people rightly giving them the honor and respect that they deserve. Mercy, what is that? Well, we studied blessed are the merciful. That means doing good to help people. Oh, and faithfulness. What does that mean? Faithfulness to do what God says. Right? Like, like you've focused on the little things. Like, oh, I'm, I'm reading my Bible at least. Right? But are you full of pride in your heart? Have you neglected the weightier matter? Jesus says these Pharisees did that. He says, these you ought to have done. Notice, he doesn't say the little things didn't matter. He says, no, you should have been tied in your mill your mill, your dill and mint and cumin. You should have been doing that, but also worked on the big things first. You also should have done the, without neglecting the others, is what he says. Verse 24, he says, you blind guides. You're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> He's like, that's kind of funny, right? Um, oh, you were so pure and so righteous, you did not want a little gnat in your soup, but it's like you swallowed an entire camel, right? Oh, yeah, you were such, so good at you know, doing all these little things, these little righteous external things, but your heart was full of sin and evil and greed. Who says their heart was full of evil, sin, and greed? Jesus, look at verse 25. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Like, why were you doing those righteous things at church? Why were you doing those righteous things at your school? Why were you being the goody two-shoes? Perhaps it's because in your heart you were full of greed. You needed attention. You needed people to recognize you. You were full of self-indulgence. You wanted all the pleasures that you wanted. You wanted to replay all the good things you did in your mind to make you feel good at night. He says, you blind Pharisees, clean the inside of the cup first and the plate, and the outside may also be clean. 
what he says next. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a tomb that's painted all white. It looks all pretty, looks great, but what's on the inside? Which outwardly appears beautiful, but within is full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I just want you to see that Jesus has no place in his kingdom. He has no place for his disciples to be hypocrites. Now, there are a lot of people that claim to be disciples of Christ that are not, and they are hypocrites, right? But he says, look, if you're a real disciple of Christ, you need to wash the inside. You need to be righteous from the heart. That's what you need to work on. If someone asks you, hey, you know, how do you want to spiritually grow this year? If you're like, oh, I just want to read my Bible. I, I, I want to do this external thing, that external thing. Okay, well, maybe the thing we should be focusing on first is, yeah, I, I need to be more humble. Yeah, I, I need to love God more. I, I need to work on the heart first. And again, you need to read the Bible. I, I don't mean to talk out two sides of my mouth, okay? But in doing that, you need to be focusing on, okay, my heart needs to be right. I need to be doing the right things for the right reasons. Very easy to become like these people. And Jesus says, look, real Christians, they have a righteousness that exceeds. The author of Hebrews put it like this, Hebrews 12, 14. He says that there's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There's a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I don't think we're talking about imputed righteousness, for those of you who are theologians. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about imputed righteousness. He's talking about genuine, organic righteousness that comes from you. What is he trying to say? that a real Christian, a real disciple, will from the inside start to look more righteous. They'll start to appear even on the outside more righteous. He says, if there's no growth in holiness, why do you think you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said at the end of the sermon, he says, many will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these good things for you? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. The same phrase he uses about the Pharisees. They're workers of lawlessness. Why? Because her heart was not right before God. That's what's most important for us right now. I can prove it to you this way. You want, when you get older, or maybe even now, um, if you're like, okay, I, I want a, a husband, I want a wife, I want a boyfriend, I want a girlfriend, right? Um, my guess is you want them to like you more than everybody else, right? right? You want them to want to be with you more than want to be with all their friends, right? You want them to be devoted to you more than you want them to be devoted to their ex-girlfriend, right? I mean, pretty much, right? You want that, okay? Um, we want that because that's what's right. When the inside and the outside match, not that we're just a, a boyfriend and girlfriend showing the world that we're boyfriend and girlfriend, but we actually like each other, right? Or even worse, when you get married, you don't want to just be a husband and wife in name only. You want to actually love each other, right? Or you just like, no, no, be so cool, to have a husband who just does not love me. That just sounds like so much fun. Or I want a wife who, like, doesn't listen to me. And I, just, I want a wife that just, like, likes everybody else more than me, right? Like, none of you say that. Because you're like, no, I, I want, like, a, a person to love me, and I want to love them. Like, there's that normal good desire, right? Here's what I'm trying to say. So in our Christianity, sometimes we're like, oh, it's good if I'm with God in name only. It's good if I follow God just like in, in the ceremonies. It's good if I wear the wedding ring of Christianity. It's good if I get baptized. It's good if I do all these external things, right? But the inward, devotional, heartfelt life that you have with God is empty. None of us want that for a husband. None of us want that for a wife. God doesn't want that either. God says in Exodus 34, that, that passage we quote at the beginning, he says, I'm a jealous God. 
I want your heart. I don't just want you to do external things. I want you to do uh, these right things, but from a good motive. I want you to love him. I want you to love God first. A lot there, a lot that we're going to unpack. This is really just kind of the beginning. We're going to talk about in the next six weeks how Jesus takes God's law and says, okay, I want you to understand what God really meant by that. I want you to understand what greater righteousness looks like when it comes to anger, when it comes to lust. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about making promises. He's going to talk about loving your neighbor. He's going to talk about retaliating and fighting against other people. He's going to say, I want you to display this greater righteousness. So we're going to get into that more, but let me pray real quick that God would help us digest this and understand this today. God, we're thankful that your word is clear. We're thankful that your word is fixed in the heavens. We know that when you say what's good and right for us, that it is good and right for us. Even when you talk about the most intimate details of our personal lives, we know that you are always right. We pray that this morning, as we kind of think this through and digest this for the first time, pray that you would help us do what your Bible says and care more about your Bible, at least just to start there. Pray that some of us would just start by getting back into the daily Bible reading today with a kind of hunger that Ezra had to study your word and to teach it and do it and all that. Pray you'd help us with this. We know that we need it. We know that as your disciples, we're very easily persuaded to get excited about everything that the world tells us to get excited about. Pray that you would protect us even in our hearts and that our desire would be for you this week, that we'd want to be like you, that we'd want to know you and that you would grow us in our Christ-like virtue as we have greater righteousness. Please help us with that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.